Welcome to Hardware Addicts, a proud member of the Tux Digital Network. Hardware Addicts is the podcast that focuses on the physical components that power our technology world. In this episode, we're going to be talking about three brand new, fresh out of the oven gaming Chromebooks. Then we're going to head to Camera Corner. Wendy will discuss color on camera sensors. So sit back, relax, and plug in because Hardware Addicts starts now. I'm Ryan, your tech guide through the universe, and with me today are my two co-hosts, Wendy, a resident photographer extraordinaire and hardware enthusiast, along with Michael, the software sage and hardware padawan. Let's find out what tech adventures everyone has had this week. Michael, what do you got cooking? I am so excited to tell you about this thing. Okay, so last time I mentioned how I was looking forward to getting a Rodecaster Pro 2, and I was hoping it would go on sale on Amazon, and I can relay that it did not go on sale. So I bought it anyway, but I am so happy I bought it. As you can tell, my audio sounds a little bit better than it does before, at least to me it does. Basically, it was an easy setup because I had the Rode mic or the Rode pod mic as well as the Rodecaster Pro because it already had a built-in preset. So all I did is say, yep, I have that microphone, and then that's it. I was done. It has post-processing stuff, all sorts of great stuff added to it, and I am such a fan of this. It's kind of silly like how much I'm gushing over it. In addition to all of the improvements to the sound quality, I also get sound effects and I can alter my voice for no reason at all. Isn't that fun? Wendy, this has been a major problem. Um, in fact, it's an issue anytime we get new audio equipment because the moment I got new audio equipment and then I patched in sound effect panel and annoyed Michael to death with it on Destination Linux, Michael gets new sound equipment. Guess what he does? He loads all these sound effects in, annoys us all to death. I do not recommend if you run a podcast allowing any of the hosts to get anything that has sound effect capability. What do you mean? Oh, my gosh. See, there you go. Yeah, he's going to drive us nuts here, too. (laughs) I remember when you first got your soundboard. So for you, Ryan, this is probably like turnabout's fair play. I'm getting revenge. But I had no part in this, so (laughs) I shouldn't have to be tortured with it. I won't do it anymore. Where this was so easy to set up, does that mean as soon as it arrived, you had it out of the box? It does, in fact. I actually got it out within, I think, six hours of getting it because I had to do other stuff before I could actually get to it because I needed to, you know, finish some prep for the show before I can start messing with the equipment. And as soon as I could, I opened it, I set it up, I started testing it. And this, to be clear about the setup process, the setup process is fantastic if you have a Rode microphone. So if you have a pod mic or a Procaster, you're pretty much good to go because it has built-in presets specifically for those microphones. If you have really any other kind of microphone, except for two others, I don't remember, there was one that was the SM7B, which is like the most commonly used broadcasting microphone that's in there as well. And then there's another one, I don't remember which one that one was. If you have something else other than those, then the setup will require you to do a lot more because you can start messing with the effects and like the uh, being using the compressor and the de-esser and all that sort of stuff. Whereas with the pod mic, it just had it built in by default. So the setup process was great for me, but if you have a different microphone, there will be more to do. What I like is this takes your mixer, this takes your de-esser, this takes your cloud lifter. It takes all of that and puts it into one small piece of equipment. And I showed a picture to Michael, a quarter of my desk is taken up with 
DBX286S, the Behringer mixer, the cloud lifter, all the cables running from each of these pieces of equipment to the other piece of equipment to route back into my computer and all of this stuff. And he's just got now one piece of equipment to do all of that. And that's a huge advantage there. And then when you take the cost of all those individual pieces of equipment and put them together, definitely worth the money. And what's interesting is everybody has that thing in hardware that they really love or kid out about or geek out about. And for Michael, it's clearly audio equipment because out of all the things <laughs> you've bought and this is the first thing that was actually out of the box and set up before our next show that I can think you've gotten ever. So I think maybe an audio file is your way out of the Padawan world. That may be your thing. Well, I've done other things, you know, in a fairly reasonable amount of time. Not maybe in the whole, I get it, I open it, I use it. Maybe not that. But yes, I do think that the audio file stuff is probably the higher likelihood of me getting into the hardware aspects of it because this thing is awesome. And you mentioned the price and the price is $700. It's not cheap. However, if you take the price of all the other components and you have like a $300 mixer, you have a $200 compressor or deesser or whatever, and you add it all together with like a cloud lifter and et cetera, you're going to get more than $700 at some point, especially with all the different features that this thing offers. The price, while seems high, it is absolutely worth it for all that you get with it because it is such an impressive device. And I've had it for about a week or so, almost, well, a little bit less than a week. And it impressed me within like the first 10 minutes. I can't wait to play with it even more because other than special effects and all that stuff, there are a lot of cool features you can do. Like you can configure different devices. Like if you want to have your phone as an input for the, an input source, you can totally do that and then be able to Bluetooth music from YouTube or whatever into the mixer and then put it out to the feed. And that's just, that's just a cool idea. Plus mix minus. Yes. Mix minus is a big deal. It also has mix minus and there I'm also playing with more of that to see how far I can push it. And it also has MIDI support. So they have this smart pad section on the right where it does all the effects and the sound bites and stuff like that. But you can also change those to do MIDI, which means you could send MIDI signals to your computer and provided you have software to can to receive that mini data can essentially do whatever you want. You could run scripts, you could you have like interact with a doll, all sorts of great stuff with this thing. And I have only scratched the surface and I can't wait to play with it even more. Nice. Well, I wish you really liked the Rode Roadcaster Pro 2. It sounds like you're just on the fence about it. However, if anybody <laughs> wants to grab one of those, I'll have a link in the show notes. You can help support the show and grab one through our affiliate link there. Wendy, tell us about 3D printer upgrade. It is definitely time for a 3D printer upgrade. And I want to start using some different filaments that need higher temperatures. So right now I am going through the process of designing a case to go around my 3D printer. As a refresher, I have an Ender 5 Plus so it is the very big Ender 5 of the models. And some of the ways that I've seen to do it are for your standard size Ender and those IKEA furniture reworks are not going to work for this. There are some funky tent things that I've seen to go over it, but they're really ugly. You can't see what's going on inside of it. And I just so happen to have some plexiglass that I've used in the past for photography related stuff. 
but they're really scratched up now. So they don't work well for that type of use and they are going to be absolutely perfect for this. I'm still trying to decide exactly how I want to attach it to the outside of the case, mainly because in this one, you have your arm that moves in the X, Y, and Z axis. Printing platform is only moving down for height-wise, but otherwise your, your table doesn't move back and forth like I've seen some of the other. So I've got to make sure that I've got lots of room up top for my arm to be moving back and forth as it's doing the printing. I've seen some different pieces that I can 3D print, like the lock nuts that are part of it already. That's probably the route I'm going to go. The biggest downside is the way that mine's set up right now. The actual electronic housing, that control panel, is right under the printing platform. And I don't necessarily want to keep that inside with the additional heat that's going to be generated. Just for a longevity standpoint, I would like to keep the airflow on that stuff better. And so I'm going to have to pull that out, design another case to go around it. So I'm just in the early stages of this 3D printer upgrade, creating a case for it. But I think it'll make printing other stuff from it later down the road much easier because I'm controlling those drafts and that temperature inside of it. Problem with 3D printers or the benefit or why so many people love them is because it's a constant endless source of upgrades and enhancements and making it better that you can do to them, which is, like I said, both appealing for the hobbyist and disappointing for your bank account. So that's really cool. Stuff right. You're working on. The great thing about this, though, is I already have a lot of the raw materials I need for it. So expense wise, it shouldn't be too bad. I'm probably going to have to get at least one more piece of plexiglass to round it all out and making sure I have the doors on there quite right. Figuring out how to make sure that I can change filaments out is also going to be one of those issues in designing this cabinet. I wish I've been able to find a little bit more laid out plan already, but it's something I don't have to be done right away and can kind of work with it, draw it out before doing any cutting. Ryan, last week you had such great things to say, and I am using my sarcastic voice with your Chromebook. Yeah. And I'm not exactly sure what to think where you got another one. So here's what happened. <laughs> I started playing with an Acer Spin 713, which was a very highly rated Chromebook to revisit the Chromebook video that I did where I was mostly negative on Chromebooks and their use cases there, but had some positive things as well, but mostly negative. And so I was revisiting that idea with this Acer Spin because this was the great Chromebook that people were recommending up to this point. And what happened is all of the sudden, the Chromebook would, as soon as you would unplug it, just immediately power off and not hold a charge at all. And there's not a whole lot of diagnostic stuff you can really do with the Chromebook. It's just pretty much everybody on the Acer forums who had come across this issue had to return the laptop itself. Thankfully, it was still within the return window. And so that one is on its way back, even though I had everything set up and was really getting into understanding kind of the new layouts and enhancements that they were making with Chrome OS. 
which I can say there was definitely some improvements from when I last did my video, which is neat. So I'm really interested in kind of diving in, but it died on me. The other thing that's really interesting is if you go to the Chromebook Reddit forums, I want to say that in my experience now, I don't, I'm not a regular follower of those particular threads, but when I was looking through it, it seemed like an endless cycle of people having broken Chromebooks in some form or fashion. Screen broken, keyboard broken, not powering on, won't power on anymore, those type of things all over the place. And I don't know if that's just the nature of that particular form for Chromebooks, but generally when you go to those type of fan sites, it's a lot of people praising and talking about how amazing they are and those stuff. And yeah. it's very interesting that I had that experience immediately after getting a Chromebook. They do make it very easy to wipe and to send back, which is really nice in Chrome OS. But then something happened. In fact, that's why we're going to talk about it here today is Google released a whole bunch of gaming Chromebooks, which we'll get into that so here momentarily. Yeah. And I think it's an interesting conversation piece because a lot of the PC market is really suffering right now. And so we'll get to kind of talk about what Google's plan here is and the manufacturer plan is here with these gaming Chromebooks. But they're brand new. They just hit the shelf. And I did buy one of the ones we're going to talk about, and oh. it will be here next week. So I'm not going to tell you which one it was, though, because in the segment, I want to see which one you all would pick, and then we'll see if I picked the right one based on your recommendation. Are you going to tell us in the episode, or are you going to wait until the next episode and reveal it to everybody? Are you oh, I'm going to tell you in this episode okay, after good. you all tell me your answer for which one you would buy. Here. Nice. I can already tell you my answer. None of them. Oh, savage. Oh, come on, Wendy. Does that count? Savage. That's so savage. Well, <laughs> okay, let's say you had to, right? You had to. That okay. Okay, if I was being forced to spend money on one, if I was being forced to spend somebody else's there money you go. on one. <laughs> yeah. You get Michael's credit Which card, one would I but get? you have to buy a Chromebook with it. You obviously are going to make sure Michael suffers and buy something. So which one would you get type of scenario? Okay, I'll be thinking about that scenario as we go through that well, segment. No, Perfect. because he bought it. What made him the hardware addict that he is buy a Chromebook? So if you were doing it for punishing... His wife said yes. That's why he bought it. <laughs> she doesn't know. Shh. <laughs> that, she, would, she would never sanction a Chromebook. <laughs> so you've been hiding these Chromebooks under your bed or something? Yes, keep I keep them hidden. As soon as she comes in the room, I throw a towel over it. <laughs> I'd be embarrassed too. Yep. <laughs> Ryan, there's something that you could be very proud to show your wife, and that is our sponsor for this week's episode of Hardware Addicts, Digital Ocean. Cloud computing can be, let's say, complex, but standing up reliable, affordable cloud infrastructure really doesn't have to be. At DigitalOcean, you can enjoy a comprehensive portfolio of compute, storage, database, and networking products that put your cloud infrastructure in capable hands so you and your teams can get back to doing what matters most, building world-changing apps that grow your business. DigitalOcean also provides with you with predictable pricing, robust product docs, and services that developers love. DigitalOcean helps teams regardless of size, whether you have a team of one person or a team of a thousand people, DigitalOcean can help your team growing with their simple, powerful cloud computing services. And as a listener of the Hardware Addicts podcast and a member of the Tux Digital community, you can get started for free. In fact, it's even better than free because DigitalOcean is giving you a $100 60-day free credit when you go to do.co slash tux2022. 
That's do.co slash tux2022. So again, go get started with that $100 free credit on DigitalOcean's awesome cloud platform by going to do.co slash tux2022. All right, so let's get into the Chromebook discussion. We're going to kick it off. We know what Chromebooks are. Hopefully, it's Google's idea of a laptop using Chrome OS, which has a lot of Linux in the back end of it, which the question is, why not just use Linux? But either way, <laughs> what are Chromebooks really well known for? Well, being cheap is one of the things they're really Perfect. known for up to this point. So you can get one for very low cost. Schools like to use them for this reason. They're very easy to manage and administer. So schools really love this because it's very easy to lock down certain sections of the Chromebook. They are pretty virus proof. Nothing is completely virus proof, but they're very good on the security aspects of making sure that the operating system doesn't allow you to make certain changes or download certain software that would be really harmful outside of the Google App Store, which has a lot of stuff that's harmful. But let's not get into all of that. They're simplistic <laughs> and they're not all known for gaming, though. That's one thing where they would have no reputation for being a great gaming device out there. Right. That's one of the reasons why they're cheap is because they don't have what I would call great hardware. Some of it's, well, not even good. It's okay. It's okay. It gets a basic job done. There are certain Chromebooks out there that people have, different manufacturers have played with, including Google themselves, where they've taken more expensive hardware and put them inside of Chromebooks and charged more like PC and Mac prices for these particular Chromebooks. I don't know how really popular those have been. I think Google's Pixel laptop was kind of popular, but then they killed the line. But that's what Google does with everything. So who knows whether it was really successful or not. But they're not making their Pixel Chromebook anymore. But what they did announce after they killed the Pixel is that they have three brand new gaming Chromebooks. That makes so much sense. That's like that's fantastic. They're making gaming Chromebooks. So they take a Chromebook, which is mostly for like web browsing and using the cloud apps and stuff like that, then make a gaming version for their Google Stadia. Wait, maybe not. Oh, oh my God. Yeah, definitely not because they killed that too. Yeah. Well, Google being Google. Well, they killed their Pixelbook line, at least for this year. They killed Stadia, which was their gaming platform, which on my video, when I talked about the ability that you can't game on these really at all, outside of doing some Android apps that are not meant to be on a bigger screen type of gaming. People mentioned, hey, Stadia, 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 but that's not around anymore. So those comments didn't age well. But <laughs> three new gaming Chromebooks. So when you think of a gaming laptop, you think of a pretty powerful processor, some good RAM, a really fast screen, and of course, a GPU. Right. These don't have GPUs inside of them. Okay. So, because it's been Googled. Been Googled. It's been Googlified. But don't worry, people. If you are a pro Minesweeper, you can totally use this. Well, no, that's Windows. I don't know oh. if it's Minesweeper. Well, it's probably a Minesweeper knockoff for Chrome or something. or something. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. But hey, we're being positive here. <laughs> They've got three brand new gaming Chromebooks announced at a time when PC manufacturers all around are feeling the pain of being unable to sell their inventory and the PC market is crashing like crazy lately with lots of computers sitting on the shelves. Google's like, nah, we've got three new ones. We've got the Acer Chromebook 516 GE, 
the Zeus Chromebook Vibe CX55 Flip, and the IdeaPad from Lenovo Gaming Chromebook. And so these are the three Goliaths that are going to take on the gaming world. We're going to start with the Acer. We're going to go down and look at some of these specs here. So the Acer has a 16-inch, which is really nice, nice 16-inch screen. 120 hertz, 2560 by 1600. Not bad. So not 1920 by 1080. I mean, I think we could do some applause for that. Yeah, it's not bad. That right there, they're actually already surpassing most PCs out there. In fact, most of these companies, Acer, Asus, and Lenovo that make PCs, also love that 1920 by 1080 form factor. So at least in the Chromebook, they're skipping that. You've got an RGB lit anti-ghosting keyboard, so a gaming keyboard. You've got Wi-Fi. 6e 256 gigabyte ssd dts speakers an intel core i5 1240p with 8 gigs of ram and a cost of 649 i mean minus not having a gpu it's a nice kit it's a really nice setup yeah the hardware seems pretty good okay that's all good but is this all in a plastic chassis these all look like they are nice magnesium framed laptops Really nice looking. In fact, the Acer 713 spin was a nice, really, really nice frame all around. It was very, very different from the Chromebooks of old that we're used to, which were that cheap plastic, and they just felt like they were a $200 laptop. Well, that's pretty cool. And I hope this particular Acer, you know, continues to work after unplugging it. Exactly. And I think that's part of the reason why people run into so many problems when it comes to Chromebooks is it's just like a sewing machine that I have that doesn't work very good because it's all built in this plastic case. And so as that tweaks and moves, it's throwing things out. You're putting stress in this case on boards and whatnot. Easy for things to get bumped and knocked around. I mean, you're packing them around. It's a laptop. It's meant to go with you. They're going to get bumped. In any of these cases, if they had this flimsy plastic case they're automatically out i think that's a very fair point i'm looking at the pictures here and it shows it in titanium gray but you're right the acer out of all of them it could be metal could be plastic so they don't seem to specify with the acer if it is a magnesium frame looking through these details here quickly this one could be plastic in fact but the other ones let's let's get to the other ones let's ignore that let's get to the asus it's a 15.6 inch, 144 hertz. Definitely need that 144 hertz for gaming. I assume that they also, since they're, they're having such a good screen, that's also not going to be 1080p, right? No, that this one's 1080p. Uh, oh, one's 1080p. okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, you can't um, you can't win them all. You can't, you can't have everything for this price range, okay? Zeus is like, listen, gamers don't need anything but the 1920 by 1080 anyways. I mean, that's what the PC world's been saying forever. So, yeah. Um, it's got an anti-ghosting keyboard, <laughs> Wi-Fi 6, 256 gigabyte SSD, Harman Kardon speakers, an Intel i5-11357 or 1135G7. Come on, <laughs> Intel. Can, can you not? Uh, there's no uh, way to say that quickly and it come out 1135 G7 nope. and uh, 8 gigabytes of RAM. No, you got to say that whole thing. Intel i5-1135 G7. Yeah, it <laughs> rolls right off the tongue. Right off the tongue. It's a two-in-one convertible and it costs a little bit more at $699, but you got mm. that Asus name, which might mean something for people and you got the Harman Kardon speakers and convertible thing is pretty cool. That processor. The convertible thing is nice. 
I wish this one also had a fully backlit keyboard. It looks like the WASD buttons have some backlight to them. But if you're going ahead and putting that much work into a keyboard, why not make all of the keys backlit? Yeah, maybe they are. We'll have to get our hands on one to see. It doesn't say RGB lit, so you're probably right there. If you compare the two processors, something interesting, you, you might initially think that longer, harder to say Intel processor, the 1135G7 is more powerful than the 1240P, but the 1240P easily wins. It's much newer. It was released one year and six months later than the 1135G7. It has eight more physical cores, has four megabytes larger L3 cache. Oh, wow. 18% faster in Geekbench scores and 5% higher turbo frequency. So if you're going for processor alone, which you don't have a GPU, so that's kind of all you got, then the Acer is definitely a better spend there. Well, I would have gone with the 1240p anyway because it's higher number than 1135. That's good. <laughs> you do get Intel's naming convention. Exactly. All right. And then we have the Lenovo. Now you get a 16-inch screen. 120 hertz WQXGA, so 2560 by 1600 display, 16 by 10 aspect ratio. And this has the RGB anti-ghosting keyboard, Wi-Fi 6E, mm -hmm. 128 gigabyte EMMC drive, mm. more speakers with wave tuning, Intel Core i3+, plus, 8 gigs of RAM, and it's 679. Now, the wide quad extended graphics array is what WQXGA stands for, Mike. Because I knew you were going to be like, what's WQXGA? I have to Naturally. Know. I mean, so these It's these wide quad extended graphic array. Thank yeah. you. Thank you for explaining what these letters mean. I do appreciate that. You're very So it, that looks like a pretty good monitor. I mean, in terms of like the screens, it looks like the best one. Uh, well, it, it compares really nicely to the Acer, I guess. But based on the other things you were saying, the EMC, EMMC instead of SSD, that sounds pretty good. Except for it's less. You're getting far less overall storage oh, in I see. this yep. device, and you can't upgrade it. Uh, You're stuck point. with that. Yep. SSD would definitely be better than uh, EMMC storage, speed-wise and other ways. See, still a Padawan. Dang it. <laughs> <laughs> And then you're also taking a downgrade in your processor as far as your base level. It says uh, i3 plus. So does that mean you can get models with a higher range processor than an i3? Yeah, it doesn't specify what i3 it is. That's their streaming service like Disney plus. Oh, yes. That makes oh, sense. gotcha. <laughs> Nailed it. You're still paying $680. You have... Yeah, overall, a really nice screen, but that means you're cutting back on the amount of storage this device has, and you're cutting down on the processor. If I'm choosing between the better screen and a better storage and processor, I'm definitely going better storage and processor. This is hard. You're going with the Acer. Yeah, so Michael, when I'm spending <laughs> your money, I'm going uh, well, I, I appreciate you actually putting the, the choice of the best one and rather than the worst one, like Ryan was saying. <laughs> so I think that's a, a solid choice. I am torn because all three of these things have a lot of pros and cons. Like there isn't a clear winner necessarily, but I do think the Acer has a lot more compelling hardware based on being corrected by the other thing. At the same time, I feel like 
Ryan would want something different because of the Acer experience he previously had where it was spinning down all the time. <laughs> yeah. So So you're saying that he went with the Lenovo, the fanciest screen because that's all Ryan cares about. Dang. Cold out. Got him. So <laughs> I I'm kind of tempted to say Lenovo. I'm I'm currently considering Lenovo versus Acer. And if he says he got the Asus, it's just going to blow my mind. So the Asus, I can calm your mind. Okay. Definitely not in the running for me either. Not that everything's bad there, but the 1920 by 1080 for 699 I mean, come on. Right. I agree with you all that the Acer Ouch, is absolutely yeah. the best deal out of all of these. The problem was that that's until Lenovo immediately after release put their laptop on sale for only $399. That guarantees so, that's the one Ryan got then. <laughs> <laughs> that is the one that's on its way because $399 for $649, I could deal with for this exploratory experiment, I'm doing 128 gigabyte EMMC, although I would have liked a bigger drive in this because I'll obviously be adding Linux and other things. One of the cool things that the Chromebook does that you can't actually do in their phones, including their Pixel phones, is add a micro SD card for additional storage. And the Chromebooks actually work really well adapting that storage into your file management and being able to move software and things to micro SD. So expanding on well, micro SD is not super fast. It's not terrible either because we're on a Chromebook after all. So I'll be able to deal with the Lenovo. And at that price, it's hard to say no. That. Yeah, that makes sense. If we're going off to sell price, I think that it is definitely a better value i can see cutting back on your storage and your overall processor for that 400 range instead of that 680 range overall you probably got a good deal on this one with the sale price if you'd bought it at full price i'd be like mm, losing <laughs> your touch ryan you make me a padawan and michael would now be an expert <laughs> exactly where i would deserve that i would deserve yes, that because exactly. i agree with both of you the acer by specs alone is definitely the best value out of these at normal price there. So we'll have a link in the show notes if you want to pick up one of these if you're interested in a Chromebook. But Google is claiming that all cloud gaming Chromebooks have been independently tested and verified by leading game performance measurements platforms, GameBench. And they're saying they can consistently deliver a smooth, responsive gaming experience with 120 frames per second and console class input latency of under 85 milliseconds. Now there's a little disclaimer at the bottom saying they only tested this at 1080p when plugged into power while playing Fortnite Destiny 2 using early access test accounts on NVIDIA GeForce Now. But <laughs> don't worry about that part. That's all lawyer speak. Yeah. The key is you you only have one of these that has a 1080p screen and they only tested all of them with the 1080p screen, but they're saying they've all been certified at 1080p to be able to play gaming at 120 frames per second using cloud gaming because they don't have a GPU. We've got the right screen, keyboard, speakers, connection ports, all of that, but no GPU. So the key word is these are gaming Chromebooks, but you're only going to be able to really be gaming on them if you also sign up for a cloud gaming platform, which one of those options is no longer around. It's no longer Stadia. Yeah. There's no longer yeah. the company who is the brand behind the Chromebook of Google Chromebooks. Like, interesting timing. 
yeah. makes you feel confident, doesn't it? So all of these really scream to me exactly what Logitech's doing with their Logitech G Cloud device, where it's all mobile gaming. You're not having your games physically on your devices, and you definitely can't with any of these. Their hard drives are not big enough for local media like that. I'm curious as to how they're all going to do. We have Google putting these out, or at least their Chromebook base, with three different companies throwing their hat in. We see something else like this in a more handheld type device with Logitech. Is there really that much demand for devices like this? Or Maybe there's people demanding it. Maybe there's people thinking that it's a great idea, but how are they going to work in real world applications? That's kind of been the issue with Chromebooks is there there is a lot of software for basic computing, browsing the web, things like that, stuff you could do on your phone. But when it comes to actually using a Chromebook to do things like set up an IDE environment locally, specifically doing things like Python coding, for instance, this is where Chromebooks rely entirely on Linux installation. And it's very easy to get Linux up and running on them now, but you're taking up additional space. So when you go through the developer options, you click a button to enable Linux fully, you're going to get a terminal window and you can start installing things just like on Debian. And so you can run those commands, you can install all the applications you could get on Linux and it integrates those applications automatically into your application folder under a folder called Linux. So if you have any GUIs or graphical programs and things like that, then you can launch those and run those right there. But it relies so heavily on Linux, which was in my first video what I talked about. Why not just make it a Linux laptop? Why put all of this Chrome crap on top of it? I mean, because the only point which a Chromebook really becomes a really capable computer is when you use the Linux pieces of it. That's how you could get Steam on it. That's how you can do all of these other things that Linux can obviously do out of the box, but Chrome OS is still way behind. It almost feels like using Chrome OS in some ways is going back to the way Linux was probably six years ago, especially in the gaming realm. There's just a lot of limited choice and stuff. But their idea is they're going to sell you on these cloud platforms. So not only do you get the initial cost of your laptop that you're picking up, which notably is less than you would pay to pick up a good gaming laptop, a decent gaming laptop's probably at the lowest end you're going to find is going to be around the $800 mark new. Now, if you're going used, you might be able to find something in the $600 that could do these games pretty well locally without having a cloud service. They're really trying to sell you on, hey, get Xbox Cloud Gaming, which you might already have, get NVIDIA GeForce Now or Amazon Luna 2, and then this becomes a situation where you don't need the GPU and you just need a really good internet connection and you can game. Or, of course, you can play some of the Android games and stuff that are on there with that processor and some lower end games, frankly, you could play locally with the type of power that they're putting in these machines. So I think it's very interesting to see Google make a play to bring Chromebooks more into the mainstream with gaming. We've seen this may be a huge deal for Linux when we had the Steam Deck, when we got Valve and Code Weavers together and we started having gaming becoming a viable option on Linux. Linux grew in popularity a lot. Google understands this is a big market, wants to tap into it. It's an interesting way of trying to tap into it. Personally, I still don't understand why Chromebooks are so insanely popular as they are outside of the fact of when they were just really, really cheap. And that was the whole lore of it is you could get a computer for really, really cheap. 
but people keep buying them. So there's got to be something there. I have a theory, but first of all, I wanted to say that the cloud, the Linux gaming aspect, I don't think this Chromebook effort is going to be affecting that whatsoever since all the gaming is going to be on the cloud stuff. And I don't know exactly how the other ones are working, but I know NVIDIA GeForce is, or GeForce Now is using Windows in the back end. And the other ones may be using Linux, and that'd be cool, but that's really where all of the effort in that stuff is going to, is the, the cloud streaming services. Essentially, these Chromebooks have nothing to do with that part. It's just fast, as fast as they can display the data that they're being streamed is all that matters. But I do think there are a couple of situations where a Chromebook makes sense. For example, if you're giving a computer to someone who has no business using a computer and they they could maybe do something wrong, it could backfire and that sort of stuff, I could see how a very limited operating system like this would be viable there. Or if you need to like have a control, like the schools thing where it's cheap, but also they can deploy a lot easier and be able to like you know, have an account attached to a Chromebook so you could easily replace Chromebooks in a sense and not lose any of the data. So I think there are a couple of ways that the Chromebook makes sense in a general purchase, but as a gaming platform, no, I don't get it. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Google Workspace, for instance, if your business is on Google Workspace, you've integrated all of your services into Google Workspace, which actually is a really nice offering then a Chromebook would absolutely make sense. And individuals that can get away with using Chromebooks for schools and things, educational institutions, especially the cheaper ones, makes sense. I agree the gaming thing is weird. It wouldn't have been weird if Stadia was still around. Right, it exactly. It would not have been as weird at all, but it's weird now. So it's interesting, though, too, to think that Lenovo launched their gaming laptop with this big Google announcement from Google and then immediately dropped the price from 679 to 399 so I'm not sure these are going to sell as well as maybe they hope. I hope that the reason they did that is because they saw Google Stadia being destroyed and they're like, well, we got to get rid of these as fast as possible. And they did that to kind of not fire sell it, but basically just get the supply out in the hands and be like, hey, it is a decent computer to have to some degree, especially for $399. Maybe that's what they're going for. And that would kind of make sense. The rest of it, when you said that you could get a pretty good gaming laptop for 800 Versus six eighty, the extra hundred twenty dollars is not a big deal in comparison. Like, if you're going to spend that much, you know, you might as well go an extra hundred twenty. You're going to save a lot more money using the Steam library and being able to use their sales and other things and being able to install that stuff locally and being able to play that where you don't have an internet connection. Whereas all of these services are great if you have a solid internet connection everywhere you go, and if you're traveling. The hotel internet now, if you want actual decent speeds, they charge you extra for you to have the upgraded Wi-Fi package. If you want the super slow Wi-Fi package, that wow. comes for free now, I'm noticing, at hotels, which would not be enough to be able to play games. So if you're anywhere away from a solid internet connection, you won't be able to play those games. And to me, you'd be better off with the regular PC in those cases but I do like seeing the specs. I think that these are some really nice spec machines. And especially with the screens, I'd really love to see PC copy this for a laptop that's under $700. So if you see laptops in the PC world, usually with this quality of screen, you're generally in the $999 plus range. 
So this is a really good price for what you're getting. It's just the Chrome OS part of it and the gaming part of it is a little sus. The benchmark where they say the console class stuff, and that made me think, well, the Steam Deck's kind of a console, so get a Steam Deck instead. <laughs> there you go. There yep. you go. Well, and the nice thing about that is Matt from Linux Out Loud has been using his in desktop mode actually quite a bit lately. So if you can only get one device and you need to do gaming and some other stuff, I think that's a solid suggestion with a Steam Deck and a dock for it. You should be pretty good to go. I am happy to see competition for Windows and Apple out there, though, even if it is Chrome OS. That there's somebody trying to sell something different than those two there. So I do wish them luck. And it's definitely an interesting offer. Let us know if you end up picking one up in the comments. Something that is definitely great to pick up and something that everyone here has is Bitwarden. Bitwarden is the password manager that we use and trust. Bitwarden lets you set up things like a pin to easily access your password manager as well as additional authentication, such as master passwords and adding phrases to fingerprint security, all to keep your passwords safe. Bitwarden is the easiest and safest way for individuals, teams, and businesses to store, share, and sync their sensitive data. Go to bitwarden.com tux to get started for free. Say you want that premium account. It starts at just $10 per year. It comes with one gigabyte of encrypted file storage, two-step login with YubiKey, U2F, and Duo, Vault Health Reports, TOTP Authenticator Storage, and Generation, plus priority customer support. Make the smart move like many in the community have and go to bitwarden.com tux to get started for free. If you're like me, though, and you want to show your appreciation for this awesome open source project, get that premium edition, especially where it starts at just $10 per year. All right, Wendy, take us into the camera corner and tell us about color on a camera sensor. Last week, we really did a deep dive into the main guts of how a camera sensor works, but pretty much every single modern camera that you have is going to have a color sensor. And this is an extra layer on top of your main sensor. Think of it like your eye. In the back, there are these rods and cones. They pick up green, red, and blue. You have more green sensors in your eye than you do red and blue. And it's the exact same thing on a sensor for a camera. This is typically called a Bayer filter. So over top of the pixels, your little light filling buckets, you will have a blue, green, or red filter on top of that. Green light can come through the green ones, red light can come through reds, and the same as in blue. When you are working with graphics and the like, and you're setting up different colors, there is a number associated with the color. So with white in your red channel, it's going to be 255, 255 in green, 255 in blue, black is all zeros, and your colors change from there. And that's essentially the information that this Bayer filter is giving your other sensor data. How much color do we have coming in these particular areas? And we can take that signal and turn it into color. Now, one of the downsides of this Bayer filter, 
just like having all those electronics up top, it makes it so images are not quite as sharp. This is why in some situations where they need to take very, very high quality, extremely sharp pictures, they will ditch the color filter and just make it black and white because it's one less thing for that light to go through in the process. So is this what allows you to control when you're shooting in RAW, the various shades of red, blue, and green? Is the individual sensors picking up those individual colors? That's what allows you to kind of adjust those shades? Partly. So it's taking in exactly how much it's getting of each color. And the advantage of RAW, because it hasn't been compressed you can manipulate those colors. It's easier to make some more saturated, decrease some, to balance it out in a different way. But all that's still base coming from your sensor. This is in one of those cases where the larger sensor you have and the more light is coming into it, plus having those multiple pixels, those larger pixels, will help you get a better overall image, I'd say that it's not necessarily the megapixels you have, but the sensor size that makes a difference. And it's because the way you can manipulate these filters on top of that and the larger buckets you have to gather light that's coming into them, overall gives you the sharper image. It gives you more information to work with. So is the larger sensor, if the color sensor is an addition to the regular sensor, is it always the same size as your standard sensor? Or can you have a different size color sensor and regular sensor typically when you're buying one of these? This is a filter that's directly over your main sensor. So it's going to be the exact same size. The difference is going to be, okay, say I've got a full frame sensor. So that's the same size as 35 millimeter film. But it's a million pixels. Oh yeah, because more pixels is better. But that means every single pixel is going to be absolutely teeny tiny, itty bitty bitty, and getting a decent amount of light photons hitting directly in the center of that is going to be a lot more difficult. We'll take the same sensor and make it 25 megapixels. Now, all of those buckets are larger, and so the amount of information, the data that's coming in, is going to be of a better quality, and each one of those buckets is going to be covered with a filter, the Bayer filter with the red, green, and blue, and so then as you're taking that information into your raw processor, you have better quality, cleaner signal. Whereas in many cases where they're packed, if they're packed too tight, it's going to be hitting in between those buckets and not actually in the bucket. Got it. But what's not adding up about what you're saying, Wendy, is a brand new iPad Pro just launched today. And it has a big, bold okay. text, 12 megapixel sensor. That's the only thing. It doesn't talk about sensor size or anything. It's 12 megapixels, Wendy. 12. That's better than six, that's better than eight, and it's better than 10. That's turning up higher than 11. Which is all relative. Yeah. <laughs> it's all relative based on the sensor size itself. Now, one of the advantages that that fancy new iPad camera has 
is all of it's locked down. They have very specific software that goes with that camera and they can compensate for the issues, the errors in that sensor itself. But if you're talking about your regular real world everyday camera, yeah, there is going to be some of that processing, but you have the most tweaking capabilities inside a raw editing program. Seen this more and more with the Google Pixel line, the iPhones, the iPads, all of these is that they're heavily reliant on software to fix and correct a lot of the problems because there's only so big of a sensor you can put in these little tiny packages in there. And the software does a really good job of correcting those issues for the novice, but professional, no. Yes. And in many cases, you have cameras that are oversaturating color. That's not necessarily related to the Bayer filter itself, or it could be them trying to compensate for not the best quality filter, maybe not the best quality filter on top of not the best quality sensor in general. And the materials that you use in this, the clarity of those materials are definitely going to make a big difference in the overall quality of the image. As a dumb consumer, I just see Megapixel and I get excited. I don't know what to do. Because that's what seems to sell. The, what seems to sell is, guess what? We've got the most Megapixels in our camera. And we've talked about it before, and I'll say it again and again and again. Stop looking at Megapixels alone really be diving into what is the size of the sensor? What are the materials that they're using? Because you can have a massive sensor on the back of your camera phone, but if they're using crappy glass in front of it, you're going to get a crappy picture. Well, that's it. Our 71st episode of Hardware Addicts is a wrap. Thank you for listening to the show that brings you your bi-weekly tech fix. And if you're not all lit up on tech yet, then be sure to check out all the great content on the Tux Digital Network. Head right now, open your browser on your fancy new iPad or Chromebook and type in tuxdigital.com. Check out all the great podcasts and YouTube partners available. There's so much there to fill your brains with. Remember, there's no such thing as too much hardware. Learn, build, innovate, and grow. We hope you enjoyed the show and we'll see you next time for another independently tested and verified episode of Hardware Addicts to consistently deliver a smooth, responsive podcasting experience. Man, that reminds me of the way Google laid out their ad for gaming. <laughs> There's something about it yeah. that just is familiar there. Well done. So, it's something about something it. Yes, about exactly. It. How many megapixels does each episode have? At least 47. Yeah. And that's all that matters. Exactly. Also, don't stare into the sun correctly.